episode 217 of Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Nancy Clare, and I'm joined by my Speaking of Mysteries partner in crime, Les Klinger. Our guest on the podcast is Lori R. King, whose Castle Shade, her 17th Mary Russell Sherlock Holmes crime fiction novel, was just published. Lori and Les are also co-editors of four collections of stories inspired by the Holmes canon as well as I'm learning many other things. We are firmly in Sherlock country. Thank you for taking the time. Lovely to be here, Nancy. <laughs> Great to be here, Nancy, except that it's five now. It's already five anthologies. Our last one came out in December. It's called uh, In League with Sherlock Holmes. Uh, I stand from corrected. From Pegasus Books. So available at your local bookstore. And I'm... I'm surprised I missed that one because I have the other four, but I will remedy that immediately. The, the Klinger King Pantechnicon rolls on. Right, right. <laughs> well, I, I was uh, I was really excited about this book. And the reason why I'm part of this conversation is not just because, A, Lori and I have been purportedly married, but that's a whole other discussion. Uh, but B, this was a book that uh, I know Lori used as a reference. I'm holding up a copy of the new annotated Dracula uh, yep. that I know Lori consulted daily in writing uh, the book that she's writing. Now, that she so, um, you, now, none of your audience can see this, Nancy, but because the three of us are on, um, on Zoom, I'm pointing at, you see, there's the Sherlock Holmes. There it is. And there's right next to it is the Dracula. So I I, they are looking at um, the books on my my shelf that I and next to it is a book on uh, Queen Marie of, of Romania. So um, that's my my evidence that I am I am well researched on Castle Shade. Well, it's, well, it's you, interesting that you bring up research because uh, I knew better than to write a series of questions, but I did have one <laughs> because the last time you were on the podcast, Laura, you talked, we were talking about dreaming spies and the research that you put into ocean voyages. And so <laughs> a lot go, oh, there's a lot of train travel in Castle Shade. Did you have to research the rail lines of the mid 1920s through Germany, Poland, Transylvania, Romania, all those places? Yeah, yeah, because if you don't, you get letters from people saying, I really liked your book, but did you know that? <laughs> yeah. this, this train doesn't run on a Tuesday. Or in 1925, this was replaced by X. And so you have to be really careful with, um, with things like, there's, there's, there's two or three of these categories that you gotta be careful. And one of them is train schedules because people know these things. And the other one is postage. And I'm, I'm forever getting the wrong postage. And I finally just boiled it down to, she put a stamp on something. <laughs> because they did have stamps in 1925 and yes, that's, they did. That's, that's as close as I need to get. And in fact, there were two routes of the, um, the Orient Express in the mid twenties. One of them was the Southern route and it went through, you know, certain from, from Paris on down to Istanbul. The other one went from Germany through the Northern 
countries. And it actually went right through this small town of Brasov that this um, the, the book is set near in the 1920s. So, um, so yes, as, as, as you say, Nancy, it starts out with Russell getting extremely peeved at Holmes for having plunked them on, down onto this train that sits in some tiny, um, where, where are they? They're in uh, Ljubljana um, near, in Slovenia. And they're, they're, they're sitting on this siding and they've been there for hours while Holmes is thinking and she wakes up with this awful cold and is very peeved at him for not getting them on a train that actually went where they're going. So, so yes, yes, the two of them are locking horns from the beginning. And we or should mention that they are going to Transylvania. And the first thing I thought of was Mary Russell, Sherlock Holmes, going to Castle Bran in Transylvania what could possibly go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? It's true. It's true. Yeah. So, yeah. Lori, you actually went to Castle Brand as part of your tough job of doing this kind of research. It's, uh, you know, it's how I suffer for my art, right? Yes. Uh, and I, too, have been to Castle Brand. And, um, Suffering you know, it's, for your art. Well, I, I went as part of an interesting group. I had gone to Transylvania to take part in an international conference of, of Dracula scholars. And uh, part of it was we, we decided to take, after the conference, to take a tour of Romania. And part of it was, of course, visiting the Castle Brand. And when, Lori can talk some more about this, but in Romania, they've adopted... Uh, Dracula as a kind of uh, Disneyland kind of thing. It's like become a mainstay of the economy of parts of Romania to, to promote Dracula-related events and tours. And, and Castle Bran has become a magnet for that sort of thing. Uh, and the courtyard, when I was there, and I was there in 2007, so Laura, you were there much more recently, was filled with people selling vampire crap. I mean, selling Dracula souvenirs and, and Romanian souvenirs related to vampires. Uh, and of course, the truth is that Castle Brand has nothing, nothing whatsoever to do with Dracula. Uh, Bram Stoker never went to Romania. Um, he didn't set the book at Castle Brand. Yeah, they no longer have that all the tchotchkes in the courtyard itself of Bran. They, they're all you have to run the gauntlet of them at the base of the castle as you're hiking up the hill. But yeah, as as Les says, it's this whole industry that actually started up under the communists. Ceausescu was desperate for for foreign funds, and um, and so he looked around and they said, well, people spend a lot of money on uh, on you know things like tourist castles that are connected with some literary thing. So they decided that Transylvania, let's make use of it. And they had this, this castle that they had taken from the queen. Um, and so they had sort of basically kicked the, the royal family out of it. And they said, well, nobody's using this. Let's make this brand castle. The fact that physically it, it is nothing like the description other than it being a castle, it's nothing like the description from 
from Bram Stoker's book. Um, it is kind of roughly in the right place. And it does actually have a vague connection with the Wallachian leader um, who was connected in the Stoker novel, was connected with Dracula, Vlad Tepes, the impaler. Um, Tepes worked in the area. He had um, certain dealings with the people in Brashov nearby. And it's very possible that, I mean, there's obviously no records, but it's possible he was actually held in Brand Castle for a brief period of time after his arrest. Right, and, I, and uh, by the way, I mean, Vlad Tepish, we should point out, is popularly identified with Dracula. Um, it's a ridiculous attribution. There was never any suggestion. I mean, Vlad the Impaler was a well-loved folk hero of the uh, Wallachians. He was a prince of Wallachia uh, because he stood up to the Turks. He, he defended the countryside against the Turks and-, and I.e. And, he killed a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, he did so in very bloody ways, but there was never the slightest hint that he engaged in drinking of blood or anything like that. But when um, Bram Stoker was uh, research, he was in Whitby uh, in, in the north of England, researching um, the book and uh, thinking about what to write. He came across a book that was an account of the history of Wallachia. And in it, there was mention of a prince named uh, Vlad Dracul, um, whose son was named Vlad Dracul Dracula, which meant son of Vlad Dracul. Uh, and Stoker thought, that's really a cool name. I'm going to use that. Uh, that's the whole the, connection between... Yeah, it, it, it means of the dragon. Yes. Sorry. That's the whole connection between uh, Vlad the Impaler and, and uh, Dracula, which yeah. is so the same. It was a nice Mary name. and Sherlock are off to this castle, which doesn't really have anything to do with Dracula. Um, and in 1925, she doesn't assume that it does. I mean, the only reason that she is thinking about vampires is because of the general connection with Transylvania. But Bran itself is, it's far off in the future, the idea that it might be Dracula's castle. So just, just to be clear, the industry doesn't start until, you know, 50 years later. And yet they've been called by the queen of Romania to look into some suspicious doings. Yes. So. Why not? They're, they're called in because that somebody, somebody is creating problems for the queen and somebody has threatened her daughter. And she's not sure whether she should take it seriously or not. Um, but because it's her beloved daughter, she wants them to look into it. And she being a queen and... Um, and, and, a descent, and a granddaughter of Victoria, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, Sherlock Holmes is not convinced that that has anything to do with, um, with, with actual supernatural stuff. On the other hand, this is a sensitive area of Europe, and it is the the border between Bolshevik Russia 
and the West. So perhaps it's not something, you know, you know, threats that are aimed directly at the royal family may not be something that should be ignored. So that's what takes them off to, to Transylvania. And neither of them think that it has anything to do with, with Vlad Tepes or, or vampires. However, at a, in a certain, as things go along, you know, there's nothing like the power of suggestion, even to the most rational mind. <laughs> well, and, and I mean, the, in terms of sort of the public view at that point, I mean, Stoker's book was, first of all, very popular. Um, it, it wasn't as popular. I, I, would, I would go so far as to say it wasn't as popular then as it is today. Um, but it was a very successful book. It sold steadily. Um, and in addition, there had been a, uh, a movie that at least in parts of the world had come out and been successful and then got some notoriety, a movie called Nosferatu that had come out in 1922. Um, so the legends of the vampire and the vague association of Transylvania with vampires was out there in the public mind. And some Russell. of the villagers that Mary uh, talks to and questions about the things that are going on in the castle actually have implements uh, to defend against something, witches and other. Well, Lori, do you want to talk a little bit about the folkloric background here? Or? Yeah, there was a, a very interesting woman named Emily Gerard, who... Um, was married to a, um, um, I think, Polish um, army officer who was posted off to the wilds of Transylvania. And she being of an inquisitive mind and came from an educated Scots family, um, would set off and, and talk to the villagers in the area that she was. And she ended up writing first a, um, an essay that was published in a very, very important learned journal. And then she wrote an entire book about Transylvania and their beliefs and their folklore and had specific mentions of, um, of Strigoi, which are a kind of vampire, um, the other kinds of vampires, ghosts and ghoulies and things that go bump in the night were included in her books which Ram Stoker specifically made use of. Her, the, uh, the librarian in the library in London that he used tracked down his notes, compared them to books that were on their shelves in the 1880s and found little marks and notes by Bram Stoker in library books yet. Um, it was a and, private library. Yeah, yeah, but you know, but still library books. So, um, so Stoker had come across these ideas of things like, you know, garlic repelling them, um, that wooden stake in the heart, a, a bullet in the heart. Um, he, he, he did leave out certain things like um, <laughs> she had, she sort of seemed to credit vampires with a certain degree of OCD, because one of the ways that... <laughs> that you foil them was to sprinkle um, mustard seeds all over the roof of your house. And they were so taken up with the compulsive need 
to count the mustard seeds that they didn't bother anyone. So one, two, three, I'm <laughs> the count, yes. <laughs> so for some reason, Stoker didn't think this was, was dramatic enough that he'd have people sprinkling seeds and, and foiling his, uh, his character. So, And I, I, I think there was mention of the mustard seeds in the book, though. You, 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 yeah. Well, but you have, you have some sort of gyp, there are gypsy signs. There are, you know, wards um, uh, on the walls. And the wards, of course, were not just for vampires. The wards were to, to uh, keep the evil eye at bay and uh, and so on. So this is, you know, the interesting part about Transylvania, because I don't think it's really changed all that much by the time of, of Mary and, and, and Holmes's visit. Stoker set the story in Transylvania, not because of the rich vampire tradition, because there were other countries that had much richer traditions of vampires, but because it was so damn far away. Transylvania was like the other side of the moon to people living in England. It was remote and obscure and um, un un unknown. When Marie first got, when Queen Marie first got to, um, to Bucharest, the capital city of Romania, um, before Transylvania was part of it. So, you know, Romania was the civilized part of what later became Greater Romania. But when she got there as a young married woman, there were no trains and no telegraph lines that went directly into Bucharest. So it really was the end of the world. Why don't you talk a little bit, Laurie, about the history of the royal family there? Because it's so interesting that, you know, sort of Romania invented its monarchy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's a, it's a lovely story and completely baffling from modern, you know, modern sensibilities. So um, when Romania won its independence from the Ottomans in the 19th century, um, they, they set up a parliament, but they also decided they needed a royal family. So they, <laughs> they, they went knocking on doors in, in Western they Europe. They did auditions. Yeah, well, would you, you know, do you, have, do you have anyone that you'd like us to take on as our king? And they, they had one, one of the Windsor family, the, the, um, the, the German family that intermarried with Victoria. Um, and they, he, he said, no, it's too far, it's too far away. I can't, I can't do that. I'd rather just be a count over here. And so they, they, they went to somebody else and he said, well, okay. And so that was, that was the first king, was Carol I, who was this minor arist aristocrat from, from Germany. And they, he, he married this complete nut job of an English woman who was a, a, a writer and is sort of into literary salons and music. And, and <laughs> the two of them were not an easy match. And so they went and set up a royal family. And being, being not an ideal match, they somehow didn't manage to have a bunch of kids. So when time came to find an heir, they needed to bring in one of his nephews. And so they, they, they brought in, again, uh, this sort of minor aristocrat from, from, from Germany and named him the heir, married him off to this granddaughter of Victoria who actually was, had been in love with, with her cousin who later became the king 
of England. Um, but, but Marie was her name. Marie's mother was Roman, Russian Orthodox and would not permit a, a daughter of hers to marry a first cousin. So instead of that, they marry this 17 year old girl, the very height, the height of the aristocracy and the royalty in, in, in Britain off to this very unprepossessing man and who was several years older than she had nothing in common with her and didn't really even speak the same language. He didn't speak English, she didn't speak Romanian. They, they managed to communicate in German and French. And the two of them became the heirs to the throne and they became king and queen in 1914 when Carol died. But the idea of just kind of setting up a royalty because you need a king and they couldn't use any of the existing uh, aristocracy in Romania because it would have offended one of the others. So you couldn't take a prince from one of the many um, crown princes in the area. You couldn't choose one of them without offending a dozen others. And so that's why they had to go outside the country and bring, bring in Carol as their king. So, so you know, here's this a country that doesn't have paving in half of its streets, that doesn't have a, a proper royal castle, that doesn't have a king who knows anything about the country. And, and off you go. And here's Marie comes in from the outside, complete, <laughs> completely baffled by the whole thing. And, and as Les says, she might as well be living on the moon for all this had to do with her family in, in England. I think it's sort of almost a perfect uh, story to tell about uh, the post-World War I Europe, which was all over the place, literally and figuratively. Like you mentioned, there was Romania, and then Transylvania was annexed to Romania. They're pushing away the Bolsheviks. That, that's a, an issue that people like Mycroft are very interested in. And that, to a certain extent, they're they're doing a little minuet with the Germans and the Poles. I mean, you know, it's it's a it's an interesting place to be. Uh, I'm using the English word interesting, like yeah. like you wouldn't want to be there. Well, one of the one of the the things that you find in Marie's letters, for example, in her memoir, is that politics in the late 19th and early 20th century was very personal. That is, because all of the royal families were related, if you were having a problem with Russia, you, you didn't have your prime ministers talk to each other. You'd write a letter to your cousin and say, look, this is, this is not working. Can you do something about this? And that was the way that the royal families would, would get something done. It's also an interesting era because, and you've been exploring this in a number of the books, Laurie, this is still, there are still repercussions from the Great War. Um, and in this story, I don't want to, no spoilers, but there is a, there is a, a victim um, who has suffered badly from the war. And, and, the, and um, it's interesting, again, to sort of see how this continues to play down the years 
Um, this is now, the war ended in 1917, 1918. Um, you know, here we are eight years later and uh, there are still shockwaves um, from the breadth of the war. The shockwaves from the Great War then start feeding into the various colonial independence movements so that you have independence in, in India that comes straight out of the experiences of British and Indian troops. Um, you have the Second World War that comes straight out of the first. Right. And, and all of these, I mean, you look at, you look at the people who were on the thrones in the early 30s, all of them related to Victoria and, uh, and you know, half of, them, <laughs> half of them seem to be Marie of Romania's kids. And by the time the Second World War ends, they've all been deposed and replaced by either communist or some more functional democracy. The shockwaves are also at the personal level. And this is, I'm not just talking about the politics. And, and certainly your book uh, does, it's not a political book, but it's the politics are very much a part of the story, sure. but also the personal effects, um, the consequences in this little tiny village um, and, and uh, the victims of the war, the, the unrecognized victims of the war. I don't want to give too much away, but. Well, and, and it's also, you know, we in this country, we in the United States tend to think of wars as being things that happen in other countries because- Over there, over there. And in this case, the village of Bran, which is a tiny village and in 1925, it was minuscule. But one of the biggest battles of that broke open the war between Romania as soon as it came out of neutrality and the Hungarian Austrian empire was 20 miles away in Fagarash. And, and indeed one of the characters was involved in this battle. So it's only, <laughs> you know, you can walk there in a day and, and there we think you are of, in the middle of a battlefield. The other aspect I find fascinating, not just about uh, Castle Shape, but about all your books is sort of this tide of technology. And you mentioned that when Queen Marie moved to Bucharest, there was no telegraph and no trains. By the time Mary and Sherlock get uh, there, uh, there's actually a cinema that a couple of the girls go to see movies and, uh, and, and they listen to the gramophone. So it, it's sort of this explosion of communications. And, and I always, you know, there are motor cars and how people react to the motor cars. I think that's such a interesting way you weave that into the stories. Yeah. Uh, and it's an important part of what you're doing, Laurie, too, yeah. I, I must say as a Sherlockian, namely having Holmes, who is already, well, so how old is he now in this book? He's in his late, late 60s? In his 60s. Okay. So having, watching the transition for Sherlock Holmes from yeah. having been a, a man of the late 19th century with one set of technology transitioning and this is to me as a Sherlockian one of the things that's most interesting about your books is seeing yeah. the growth of Sherlock Holmes. 
And I found it interesting to write set in this particular area because, you know, this is in a little, it's kind of the pointy end of Transylvania that's surrounded by the Carpathians. So it is very far from anywhere. And it's reflected in the fact that although in Brasov, which is where they get off the train, there is cinema, there is electricity, there are cars. 20 miles away in Bran, the, it's dirt road, there's no telegraph, um, certainly no telephone lines, and no electricity. Um, there isn't any electricity in, in Bran Castle until on into the 30s. And, and yet you have a queen who is, you know, really remarkably comfortable there, but it's, it's, she's also at home in this huge and elaborate pa palace 20 miles away in, uh, that the royal family has for its summer palace. So <clears throat> this, this mix of expectations and lifestyles that you get in the 20s, I, I find really fascinating. Well, it really is the clash of the of the uh, as the old is sort of being pushed away and the new is coming in and and not that Queen Marie was in any way like Marie Antoinette, but it did sort of remind me uh, Castle Bran and her feelings toward it, uh, the way Marie Antoinette would pretend to be a milkmaid. No, I think oh. it's very true. Yeah, I, I think that she, you know, she she loved going there because it was a sort of feudal setting. You can look on YouTube and come up with um, with videos that show her walking through the streets of Bran in the 30s. And everyone, everyone there seizes her hand and puts it on their forehead. I mean, it is so much the kind of feudal attitude of bowing and scraping to the ruler um, that you, you know, you, you kiss, you kiss their, their fingers, you, um, you, you are basically groveling, which certainly you would not find later on. And she's absolutely comfortable with this. This is she. This feels absolutely natural to her. Um, and you can see why communists would say, "Wait a minute." <laughs> so, Laurie, let me ask you a, a blunt question: Why do you want to well, write these historical novels? What, what what's the what's the big appeal? I mean, you, you're also writing contemporary. Um, so what, why do you think these historical novels are important or, you know, why do you want to do them? They're a lot well, more work. I, I find, I find them I, because I, I have a background as an academic, you know, I, I really, I really like the research side of things. It, it feels, it feels comfortable to me to go in and find out stuff about an area. Um, it enables me to move my characters around to places that keep the story interesting. I think that there's always a danger with a long-lived series that you're going to get in a rut and tell the same story over and over. I mean, the, the, <laughs> the sort of Jessica Fletcher syndrome of, you know, she lives in a, in a small right. town. And, and yet every... 237th murder in that small town and. Right. Yeah, and you think, would you ever invite this woman to dinner? No, because, no. But also, as, as a historical mystery, 
you can do stuff that um that enables you to focus on modern themes and concerns so that when i'm writing for example um in oh jerusalem if i'm writing about the british mandate period in 1919 in what was then called palestine and is now israel um it enables me to look at the time, I mean, 1919, but also to look over the shoulder of the people and say, all of these decisions that you're making here are going to have repercussions to, for us in our lives a hundred years later. And we as readers um, can look at the characters doing these things and thinking that they're solving stuff and yet knowing that in fact there's more problems coming similarly when you're writing for example a book set in india um, you can you can look at the kinds of changes that were happening between the raj and the modern india and why they happened and what they have to tell us about life today and why maybe we should be making our decisions based on the past rather than based on what feels right now. So, you know, the idea of thinking of historical novels as being set in a foreign place that has nothing really to do with the modern world is very deceptive because in fact, I, I think of them as being more a mirror that allows us to focus on a certain area um, rather than just something that is is long ago dead and finished with. What a, what a great answer, Lori. So, <laughs> well, and it wasn't even a setup. <laughs> you know, like they say, I mean, the, the the past the past is not dead. It's not even past. Well, so now speaking of the past, here's here's the question. You may not want to answer this question. Okay. What's next for, oh, for Russell and Holmes, I mean. Oh, for Russell and Holmes? Oh, wow. The one I'm working on is a two-parter, but it's not a Russell and Holmes. It's a contemporary, parts of it are contemporary and parts of it are a 60s and 70s cold case. So, um, but that's, that's, a, that's a standalone. Um, I think the next one will probably find them in Paris, but it sort of depends on whether or not I can get around to Paris and kick around because I, uh, you, you got to travel at some point in order to do these, these books. I understand some people don't need to. People like H.R.F. Keating, he wrote eight books set in India without ever having been. I kind of need to go there. And it's been a long time since I've been to Paris. So I, Barbara Peters wants me to um, to write a book set in the Dordogne. And so I'm, I'm kind of trying to think, well, maybe if they start out in Paris and then have to go down into the Dordogne, that would be fun. So, yeah, it would be it would be so, so much work. I would have to go and live in the in, in the Dordogne for a month. And oh, I, I know it would be so, so, so problematic. So. <laughs> so the standalone is not um, feature any of your characters, uh, Kate Martinelli or. Uh... I think, I think that um, Kate and Al Hawken are sort of in the background, but it's not, 
it's not strictly speaking a Kate book. It's their world. It's the SFPD world, but um, but it's a, a new character. And <laughs> hey, well, we've already had uh, Kate investigating uh, Russell. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So you know this is good. Well, I, I I hope this is getting your juices flowing again here, and, and you know yeah. that you sound excited about it, which is great. Not that you're yeah, not excited I, about Russell. I I know that you enjoy doing them. Um, I, just well, not I a do. steady diet. I, I, I can I can only write if I write more than like three three in a row. I start doing violence to them. So when I had last time I had to do four in a row, the fourth one. She wakes up with amnesia and a severe head injury. So, you know, I'm not, I don't want her to start losing parts of her body because the, you know, because I'm frustrated with right. Well, this of course is reminiscent of Conan Doyle himself, who said yeah, that yeah. Uh, he did he had a surfeit of homes that it felt like when he did too much pate de foie gras and uh, or so much <laughs> foie gras and he just couldn't take it anymore. You know. Yeah, yeah. So you just toss him off a cliff. So, but you know, I I haven't tossed either of them off a cliff yet. Just you know, I, I put them in the closet for a year. And so, your fans always want to know what's happening with Russell on television and uh, and film. Is there anything you can share there? Yes, you know, there's a there's a project that's going ahead slowly. That you know, 2020 had all kinds of bizarre repercussions that you'd think, well nobody's doing anything out in the outer world. Why can't you do this? <laughs> so, but instead a lot of, um, a lot of productions all kind of backed up against each other. And so the team that was supposed to start doing various things for the Russells in January, suddenly were called back in to do things because some of the projects that have been delayed in, uh, in lockdown. Um, had to be re-scripted because it no longer was possible to film them the way that they had them. So, you know, everything has been delayed a few months, but it's still, I mean, they're still full of enthusiasm, full of ideas. I, I, I keep, I keep uh, suggesting that they really need um, a consultant named Klinger on, right. on, on the team. So, um, well, so hasn't anybody pitched uh, that they want to do a pandemic film and, and King, you wrote a book called lockdown. So you, that does perfect. Absolutely. Yes. I, I, you know, it, it must have to do with pandemics, right? Yeah, It must have, you were prescient. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh-huh. Nancy, you have a list of prepared questions. No, I don't. I said, because I knew that you and Lori were going to be here. I did not have a list of prepared questions. And, well, and Lori has more or less touched on the, the, the things I was interested in, the research, the idea of technology and the history of the region. You were kind enough to ask her the question about what comes next so we can set her up for the next uh, podcast interview, hopefully sometime next year. Um, and, but I, and I did ask in exchange, what what is next for you, Les? Well, um, I just turned in uh, the new annotated Jekyll and Hyde, uh, which will come out from uh, the Mysterious Press uh, in early twenty one, early twenty twenty two, and uh, also very much uh, steeped in working on the Library of Congress Crime Classics uh, mystery series, which has been uh, really fun. Uh, sort of exhuming, that's a good mystery word, exhuming 
classics that have sort of gotten lost or fallen out of print. Uh, one that I just turned in is a really exciting book called The Conjure Man Dies, uh, written by Rudolf Fischer at the height of the Harlem Renaissance, uh, the first mystery to feature uh, black detectives. So um, this is good stuff we're doing. While we're here, we might as well flog in league with Sherlock Holmes. The one uh, I neglected to mention. Right, and I just thought I might mention some of the wonderful contributors that we had for this book. So this series of anthologies that Lori and I have been doing, um, I, since we have uh, a minute, I will at least, we can tell the origin story. So once upon a time, Lori and I were invited to be on a panel for Left Coast Crime. And they the said, <laughs> yeah, who, long time ago. And, uh, and they said to us, who would you like to have on the panel with you? And we said, well, um, Michael Conley, Lee Child, and Jan Burke. They said, well, those are our guests of honor at the convention. I said, don't worry, it's gonna be cool. I, I know that they're all secretly Sherlockians and this'll be a unique panel. I mean, nobody's ever heard them talk about this stuff. So it was a great panel. Uh, they kept saying things like, well, I don't know much about Sherlock Holmes, but, uh, and were wonderful panelists. And after it was over, Lori and I said, why don't we ask them to write some stories for an anthology? And the idea was not to ask them to write Sherlock Holmes stories, but to write stories inspired by the Sherlock Holmes canon. Um, and so they did. Jan did, Lee did, Michael Connolly did, Neil Gaiman, on and on. A list of stellar writers. Uh, this is now this, these, the fifth of the anthologies, and the writers are Maria Alexander, Robin Burcell, David Corbett, Martin Edwards, Tess Gerritsen, Derek Haas, uh, who is a mystery novelist and the showrunner of Chicago uh, Fire and Chicago PD. Uh, Joe Hill did a graphic story for us, uh, and his artist, Martin Simmons. Naomi Hirahara, uh, Joe Lansdale and his daughter, Casey, did a story. Lisa Morton, Brad Parks, Quay Corte, James Lincoln Warren, Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough, and James Ziskin. And, and Jim's story, by the way, has been nominated for awards across the board. I mean, it sort of, it got nominated for the Edgar, the McCavity, the Anthony, and I think the Agatha uh, for best short story. So thanks to Lori and my editing, of course. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. these books in particular have been really tough to edit. You, you ask A-list writers to write stories and then you sit back and you say, wow, that's really a great story. Yeah. Lori actually let me include a story in one of these volumes. And one of these days, the reckoning is gonna come and Lori's gonna have to produce the story herself. Well, I, I, I did half of a Twitter conversation. That's true. That's true, that's true. I remember that. It was a... A, twi a, a conversation, a, an interview. I think we called it a twit twit interview. Yes, the twinterview or something. The interview between Back in those naive early days of Twitter. And yeah. Mary Mary Russell answering his questions in a very firm, no nonsense manner. I've loved all of them, and anyone who is a fan of Sherlock Holmes or short stories or mysteries or reading would love them. <laughs> well, thank you for having uh, both of us on the show. Um, and oh, thank you for doing this. I'm so excited to have Les with me on this and to talk to Lori. It's, it's, it's... Well, 
it's it's great. great. This is, I think this is the third event you and I have done, Lori, about this book. I think that's right. And um, always find new things to talk about. So you can spend all day with Les and Lori. <laughs> I wish. <laughs>